Hey, this is Andrew Schlecht from The Athletic. The NBA Finals begins on June 6th, and we have you covered at The Athletic NBA Show. Join us Monday through Friday to hear voices like Zach Harper, David Aldridge, Marcus Thompson, Dave DeFore, Sam Amick, and many more. We will have instant reaction shows after every finals game, plus podcasts to take you behind the scenes in between games. Listen to The Athletic NBA Show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekul, joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Paul Tenorio, coming to you from Doha, Qatar, where we have just enjoyed a traditional Qatari breakfast of Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> Paul, um, you just you just had a little bit of the after effects of that Krispy Kreme donut right before we began recording. He, this man unleashed a, a pretty robust burp. <laughs> <laughs> I think- I think we just confirmed being roommates. Like in that moment, it was like we've been roommates for a few days now, and that just like you think that was it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was our our joint Peloton workout yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. We did move a coffee table so we could basically jazzercise together uh, <laughs> uh, here on what day was that? Thursday. We are we are sitting here. We are recording on Friday morning, Qatari time. We are looking ahead. We are what? 40 out, 48 hours from the start of the tournament, um, 90, 72 plus 12, whatever, 84 hours. That math, there we go, from the U.S.'s first game on Monday evening against Wales. And that's what this show is going to be about. It's going to be about that Wales game. Paul and I are going to kind of set the scene a little bit, give up some of our takeaways from U.S. availability. We've spoken to quite a few players, as well as Greg Berhalter here in Qatar this week. And I will also be talking with Jack Pitt-Brook, one of our colleagues based in the UK from The Athletic. He covers England primarily, uh, but he also has a good deal of expertise on Wales, so he'll be giving us some of that perspective here, likely in the second segment. I don't know. We'll decide how we ordered it, but likely in the second segment. First, we're going to start with come up some of those some of those takeaways from availability. Um, Paul, what's what stood out to you from the last few days in terms of what players have said, uh, what the vibe is, and, and kind of the overall feel of training in the build-up to that first match. I think what stands out to me is, you know, we, we've known that this team doesn't have World Cup experience, and we've known that this is a, a weird tournament. You know, usually there's a long build-up, a long camp, and yeah. then you're going to games. And I think both of those things have kind of reared their head through this availability. Like, players have talked about how it hasn't really hit them yet that they're at a World Cup, that they're going to play in a World Cup. I think part of that is because they literally have never done it before, and they're just kind of like, whoa, this is crazy. This is my dream come true. But also, like, you know, I, I don't really know when the game started. It feels kind of weird. And that the other part is that, yeah, you, you left your club a few days ago. There is an adjustment process that they're all going through to kind of reset their minds mm-hmm. from club world to World Cup. I mean, we're kind of seeing it in our jobs and in the real world like people are still talking about cristiano ronaldo at manchester united there's and there was like free agency and mls back home like people are like there was an expansion draft expansion draft but like really in the european side of it like people are still talking about their clubs what happened on the weekend you know things like that 
And it's like that switch hasn't turned yet it, just because it's so weird to have such a short span between the end of club games and the start of the World Cup. So that's kind of what stood out to me. I just I'm I think that everyone is kind of like adjusting still to like the fact that they're here and yeah. that the World Cup like when you said that at the start of the show that the World Cup is starting in 48 hours. I was like, holy crap, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that that vibe has come across pretty, pretty strong throughout the entirety of the last few days of media availability of guys just being yeah. like, whoa, it's kind of crazy to be here. And I, I, don't, I don't really know. It hasn't really, really hit home yet. I think that's a good thing for the U.S. I don't know. We talked in From Cuba to Qatar, the narrative podcast that we did. Greg Berhalter said it. You know, if you go in and you're fearless and maybe you're too young and dumb to know the gravity of the moment, then you can be dangerous. And I think maybe we're seeing that sort of play out with this U.S. team. They don't really seem, and it's through no fault, or, or it's a normal thing because of all the reasons that you just laid out, Paul, that the gravity of it hasn't really hit them yet. And I think that lends itself to approaching the Wales match in a good way. I think the demeanor of the players that we've spoken to has been certainly focused, but relatively calm and relaxed as well. Maybe even more so than what we saw in the build-up to qualifying matches in certain windows. Um, well, they're way more comfortable. I mean, the hotel they're staying in is ridiculous. They right. set it up to feel and, like home. And they told them to unpack their bags. They right. don't have to go from place to place. Like it's, it's given them that advantage. That's probably part of it. DeAndre Yedlin, the only player that has played at a World Cup, you know, he's, he talked on Thursday about, hey, what have, what have guys been asking you in the build-up to the tournament about what they should be prepared for? And, and he's like, it's more me highlighting the differences. And that was the main difference that he did highlight. And he said that was a real positive. Um, but I feel like they're in a good place mentally. Christian Pulisic, actually, I thought gave a relatively interesting, for his standards anyway, interview on Wednesday. And by that, you mean he was more comfortable, more revealing than usual. Like, yeah, he, it's, he's an interesting interview. Like, he's quiet. Like, he, do, he does not speak loudly. So you sort of have to, like, lean in. He's pretty measured in terms of the, the clip at which he talks. Kind of a slow speaker. Um, never really seems, like, too high. Kind of seems like he would maybe rather not be there. and it, Not in a bad way. It's not that he dislikes anybody. It's just that maybe it makes him a little bit uncomfortable to do some public speaking in that way. And I thought that he was pretty honest with his comments about the emotions that he's feeling. He's been public, of course, about what failing to qualify for 2018 meant to him and what qualifying for 2022 also meant to him in the opposite way. And now as we get to the first match, he was like, yeah, I'm feeling a ton of emotions. Just kind of like nerves. I'm scared. I'm excited. It's like everything all at once. And it seemed like he was really at peace with that and kind of processing it in a positive way, which I thought was good. You want Pulisic in a good mental spot. And also, Paul, one of the things that, that he expressed, I think, a lot of confidence in was his form. I asked him about that. It hasn't been a simple run-up to the World Cup for him. Change of manager at Chelsea. There were all those rumors before the summer transfer window closed. Maybe he would go to Manchester United or Newcastle or be loaned somewhere in Spain or Italy. That obviously didn't happen, but he hasn't been playing a ton either at Chelsea, mostly a reserve. And, and so I asked him, I was like, you know, 
do you feel prepared? Do you feel like you're, you're in a good spot in the run up? And he's like, actually, I feel like I'm in really good form right now. I feel fit. I feel strong. I feel confident. And that is, I mean, that's music to any U S fans ears. So that's kind of the overall vibe I've gotten is, is kind of confidence, relaxed and, you know, not overwhelmed by the gravity of the situation. Yeah, I think they also, a lot of the players who were involved in qualification have talked about the fact that, you know, this is more time than they got to prepare for games and qualification. Like with qualifying, they yeah. get in, they have like two or three days together and then play, and then two or three days and play. So to have a week to them feels like a good amount of time to adjust, to kind of get comfortable, to hang out with each other a bit. They've had free time to go out and about. Um, you know, Yunus Musa was talking about, you know, being a, a, a Muslim in a, in a Muslim majority country and um, first to host a World Cup and being at the mall uh, during a call to prayer and going into the mosque. So, like, they've gone to malls and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, they've been able to get out and about. Um, and and I think that that's been a good uh, a good thing for a young group like this. Like, they've been able to, like, normalize in, it a little. Yeah. Chill out a little bit, hang with each other and. They've had a few extra days to prepare, so they had a couple regen days before they started to really get into the, the game prep, mm-hmm. um, which I think is also helpful. Like, I, you know, I, I feel like it was so rushed in Windows and, and that idea of like doing regen and then that would leave them often with like one day to prepare. Yeah, they didn't, re- they didn't really train at all. Yeah, they'd have like one day of real preparation of, of training before before games and here they'll, they'll get a few. So it is interesting. You know, and, and I think, you know, what what's unique about this experience is just like, I don't know, it just feels like, I, I feel like I'm getting, I don't know, I've been around this team so much, and yet, like, the youth of the team, like, how young they are, has has kind of, like, hit me a little bit more in this camp. It just... Why? I don't know. I just feel like when you talk to them, like, you get that, like... That, I get the opposite I, I get, like, that joyful nature a little bit. Like, they're just okay. so, like... I don't know. You're sitting and talking with these guys at tables. You realize like how young they all are. Like Eunice is like he's 19, 19, about to turn 20. Brendan Aronson is what? 21, 22, 22. Gio Reyna just turned 20. 20. And you're, you're hearing these guys talk about like, cause like a lot of people are asking them questions about like life experience, memories of the world cup. And Gio Reyna was like Clint Dempsey's goal in 2014. You know, because he's so young. Yeah, he was tw- he was twelve years old. <laughs> right. So like, it's just eleven like, actually. I yeah. keep having these moments where I'm like, man, I you forget just like that these guys are like kids. Geo probably doesn't even remember his dad playing. He does not. I mean, he said like in 2002, he was like, I was in my mom's belly for that tournament. Like, it's I watched. We- it's a weird way to put that. <laughs> he said that's what my mom always says to me. Is what he said. You know. Yeah. So. Um, you know, it just it, like those little answers that you get because there's a lot of reporters here doing background stories and profiles on these sure. guys. And it just is like a reminder of how cool it must be for this team. So many young guys to have gotten to this point so early in their careers that I, I don't know. It's just that that's kind of like been another thing that keeps popping up in these roundtables we've done with players in these press conferences. And it's like when they're oh, yesterday was hard for me, man, when they were like calling Tim Ream a grandfather. And I was like, I'm too, I, I'm, I feel I feel like this is this is what this I'm, last I'm, minute I'm, I'm, has been about is I'm, that they called Tim Ream the grandpa of the team. Tyler Adams did. And Paul is a couple of years older than Tim Ream is. And I feel like this all cascaded upon him. I feel like you're going through a little bit of 
Are you going through something right now? No, you know. Do we need to talk I'm, this out? I'm good. I'm good with where I am in my Grandpa, life at this Grandpa age. Paul. But let's let's have some respect <laughs> for for you know 35 for is the young. Viejos. Someone said like yeah, it's like talking like he's 40. He got he's got a few years, man. My favorite was when someone asked Tyler Adams of uh, what do you like like guys are trying to play until they're 40. What do you think about that? And I was like, Tyler Adams is like 23. <laughs> what does he know about being old? Nothing. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to hit on that. First, I did get the opposite feeling because while these guys are very young, many of them have been around the national team for a long time. Many of them have played very big games for country and for club. And we've gotten very used to speaking to them in settings like we've spoken to them this week, which has primarily been seated at, at just kind of round tables in a tiny media center at Algarafa Stadium. And so it's been a relatively informal format, conversational. And, and they seem, I don't know, more mature to me. Like you see the growth. And, and like they seem mature beyond their years, I would argue in a lot of cases, more so than they did last September when Tyler Adams is talking about, oh yeah, let's take nine points. And then it's a roller coaster of three games. So that's one thing. Another, and, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this poll, is that while the players seem to not really be feeling the gravity of the moment, I think Greg Berhalter is. His press conference, what, what day was that, Monday? That was our first day here, to be fair. It was our first day here. Um, but normally, Berhalter is pretty open. He's pretty relaxed. Uh, he gives expansive, long answers a lot of times. And, and it's not that he was closed or curt or anything like that, but he was just a little bit tighter. And, and I think a little bit, you know, you could see it. This is obviously a huge moment for him as it is for the rest of the team. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. I don't think it's going to like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's going to bleed out in any kind of way. Um, and then the one other thing that I would mention that we sh should have mentioned off the top, we're sitting here recording Friday morning. The U S is actually off today. They're not training. Um, on Thursday night, they played a training session <laughs> against local club Algarafa SC, which is the club whose stadium they're using as their training facility. Um, you know, Josh Sargent told one of our athletic colleagues at Norwich, Michael Bailey, over the weekend before he came here, that it would be a friendly. I don't know if it was that. U.S. soccer was being a little strange about it. They wouldn't confirm that it was happening until right beforehand. And I don't know that it was a friendly. Um, but... You know, maybe it was kind of a, a structured game with stoppages and yeah, little I mean, teaching moments and, and things like that. Who knows? But they did play with Algaraf SC on Thursday night. Yeah, they called it a joint training session. I, I, I probably would say that's, that's probably accurate. I'm guessing that there were some aspects of 11 v 11 play, and I'm guessing there were also, also some aspects of saying, okay, listen, let's try, let's work on defending set pieces. Here are some things we've seen Wales do on video, like... Let's work on defensive transition out of set pieces. Let's, you know, where, where you're more stop and go. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the stakes are high. And I think also we know that coaches read everything. And they, they read everything. I don't know that they are this they, week. They read everything. In There's the been an avalanche of content. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, in terms of, like, what, a, what an opposing coach says. Like, in, uh. in most respects, they'll look that stuff up. In a world or have cup, someone do it for them. In a World Cup where it's like actually like 
like the stakes are the highest. Like they're like nothing Greg Berhalter says is going to go under the radar in the Wales camp. I don't think. Yeah. You know, and I think he's probably like I think that's got to creep in your mind a little bit. You know. One so, thing he said on that note was he, he called us out a little bit, Paul. He said in the American media. That's right. I think Wales is very underrated. Which fair enough. We'll talk more about Wales later in the show. Um, but you know. I think to your point, you don't want to give any bulletin board material. He certainly didn't do that. For sure. Well, I think he also is like, like I think part of that is everything's about like that game of, of setting expectations or resetting expectations. Yeah. And there is this manipulating I do the think, media us. Yeah. I do think there is this belief back home that the U S is the favorite to finish second. They are now, by the way, the books have moved. The numbers have the moved. betting, the betting favorite. The betting favorite. Vegas has them as the betting. Favorite. Yeah. They've yeah. moved up into the second, but they weren't always there. And I think when you look at the, the Welsh team, you know, this isn't like a team that's like that much, like the idea that they're like way worse than the U S that the, that the U S is like clearly the second best team in the group. is just not right. I don't think know? many people have that idea. I, I do. I, I think like not, amongst, anyone, not anyone that actually pays attention. Yeah. But that there's a lot of people that are just going to tune in. And, and, and I think that aren't paying attention, haven't been paying attention, haven't listened for, to from Cuba to Qatar to learn about what How expectations dare they? should be about this team. That's episode five, by the way. You wow, you should listen to it right team. now. Stop yeah, listening you know to this show Just and listen to that pause, one. Turn on your other device, yeah. listen to episode five about expectations, and then and, come back to the rest and of the And then unsubscribe, and then resubscribe, <laughs> and then unsubscribe again, and then resubscribe again, and then leave a review, and then leave another review. And All right, sorry. You know what? With Twitter going down, all you're going to have is free time to listen to from Kuva to Guitar. Yeah, that's right. Just take that Twitter time. Anyways, the point Undownload, being... Undownload, re-download. <laughs> the, the point being that... that you know, I just think that like it was a little bit of that. It was a little bit of messaging of like, hey, by the way, like the, this is a difficult opponent. This isn't like a game that we should be like that. The general fans that are coming in saying, oh, the U.S. should 100 percent get out of the group, 100 percent like be advancing. This team is so good. Like Wales has some good players. They play in the Premier League. You know, they've, they've got talent. And we'll, we'll get into that Welsh team with Jack Pitt Brook. But I, I just think like there's a little bit of there's a little bit of that caginess, the around this World Cup that came in that first press conference. I'm interested to see how Match Day minus one press conference goes from Greg Berhalter. I really am. That'll be on Sunday. We will, of course, be there. It's happening a couple of hours before the opener between Qatar and Ecuador. Um, Paul, you mentioned Jack Pitbrook. Let's let's get to that interview. Let's get his perspective on the Welsh camp, how they're viewing the U.S. team, what the expectations are for that group internally and among the fan base, and maybe what we can expect from them. And then we'll return with some thoughts on kind of the tactical approach, the lineup, uh, what we might see from Wales, how the U.S. should attack them, and maybe a prediction or two for the match on Monday night. Stay with us. Allocation Disorder. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayskull, joined by Jack Pitbrook. Jack, thanks for joining. My pleasure. Jack covers England and Tottenham Hotspur, Spurs, uh, for The Athletic. He does a great job doing that. If you don't follow him, check him out. Check out some of his stories. He is here in Doha now covering the England team. But Jack, we are here to talk a little bit about Wales. Um, our, our normal Wales writer, I think, is somewhere in Turkey right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Laurie Whitwell driving or, or flying or 
I don't know, swimming, biking, uh, all the way across Europe and the Middle East to Doha. Check out their journey on the site. They've had some entertaining it's pieces. It's really good stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. That it's been a remarkable road that they've taken. Um, but Jack, I just kind of want to, this, this episode is all about previewing USA versus Wales on Monday night. Um, so I wanted to get your takes, your opinions, your thoughts. First, on the perception of Wales in the UK. Obviously, you know, it's its own country. Um, you're based in England. But what is the general vibe about this Wales team having not qualified for the World Cup in decades, now back in the big dance? What are the expectations? I'm not sure what the expectations are for them to progress out of the group, although Wales fans might feel differently about that. I think it's just an amazing story that they've got there. This is Wales's first World Cup since 1958. It's only the second World Cup they've ever played in. You know, growing up in... In England, you were in the 90s, like Scotland were good and Scotland got to the 98 World Cup mm-hmm. and the Republic of Ireland have consistently got to World Cups. Whereas for Wales, this is, I mean, this last six years is the best generation in Welsh football history. Right. They're getting to the semi-finals of Euros in 2016. Frankly, it's quite a similar team now. Like they've had a, a bit of churn of players, but some of the guy, same guys are still there. When in the Euros last year, um, the delayed Euros, and now they finally like completed the set by getting to a World Cup. So that in itself is a great story for them. And um, maybe they'll get out of the group. I don't know. I'd say it's probably a coin flip whether they get out or not. And a lot hinges, of course, on that first game Monday Completely. night. I, I was just doing radio with a, a Wales fan who said that that basically their final. Mm-hmm. Like if Wales, Wales, the way that the Welsh fans see it and the Wales team see it is if they can beat the USA in the first game then maybe they'll only need one other point right. to get through and I imagine the USA probably yeah. feels a similar way 100%. so there is a huge amount from both teams riding on that first match 100% um, Wales typically we know how like they like to set up to play three centre backs couple of wing backs back five sit pretty deep look to break on the counter with Bale Brennan Johnson Dan James etc do you expect that approach to continue against the US? I think so. I wonder if... I mean, Brennan Johnson's a brilliant player, but I wonder if they might end up playing Kiefer Moore instead. Yeah. Simply because, like, you know, Brennan Johnson's a more excited player, he's a more gifted player than Kiefer Moore, but Kiefer Moore is very effective. You know, defences don't like playing against him. He's very big. He He's very physically dominating. He's got a pretty good record for what... He scored some big goals for Wales in the last year or two. So I just wonder if they might keep Brennan Johnson's on the, on the bench so they can start with Kiefer Moore. But yeah, I think it will it will fundamentally be a 3-4-3. Three, three. The, the, the biggest question, and the other big question apart from Johnson versus Moore is, how can they get enough energy in the middle of the pitch? Because if mm-hmm. they're only going to play with two central midfielders, the problem they've got is that Aaron Ramsey, as good as he is, doesn't really give you that much without the ball anymore. Right. Like, he's, he's, in, he's a genius when it comes to making those clever little runs to get into space or picking passes that other players haven't seen. But what he doesn't give you is... He doesn't really give you defensive work anymore. So I just wonder whether Rob Page might think it's safer to not start with Ramsey or maybe to only do like half half the game with Ramsey, half the game with another guy. And for those who don't know, who would be the candidate to replace Ramsey should they go down that road? Well, the problem is that Joe Allen, who's obviously been a fantastic player for them, you know, he was great all the way back in Euro 2016. Like, Allen's struggling with fitness as well. He's in his 30s. He... You know, there was some speculation a week or two ago that he wouldn't even make the squad. He has made the squad, but I don't think he's at 100% fitness. So maybe they could bring in somebody else, like maybe Joe Morrell, I think, might come in. Um, I think we'll probably play with Ampadu in that midfield. Maybe they would tweak the system to go to a 3-5-2, perhaps to get another body in there. Mm -hmm. But then if they do that, then it's harder to have, you know, 
it'll have to be Bale plus one other guy up front and maybe that would hurt the balance of the team going forward so I think these are the I, I do think the midfield is arguably where the weakness of this Wales team is well that's interesting because the US is a team that really likes to play in transition they're not great with the ball <laughs> they don't score goals really that way they struggle to break teams down who, who sit deep and try and stay compact and defend so i hear you on that midfield the u.s probably will have a numerical advantage i'm just not sure it'll make a huge difference because they don't really have guys in there that are super great at playing the final ball so i'm curious to see how that plays out you mentioned Kiefer Moore and set pieces and, and he can do some damage there he's done well for Bournemouth in the run-up to the tournament um, another interesting dynamic there that Paul and I talked about elsewhere on this show I think later in the show I think we're doing the second segment right okay. now um, <laughs> is is basically the U.S. isn't great on set pieces particularly because Weston McKenney might not be fit right. and he's excellent in the air and he may not start so some interesting dynamics there for sure um, one of the interesting things about Wales for any audience, but particularly for the U.S. audience, is Gareth Bale. We saw him in MLS Cup. I'm not sure if you yeah, saw yeah, that. Yeah, that was great. Um, scoring the 128th minute. Can you just kind of expound a little bit on what he means to this team, uh, not just from an on-field perspective, but from you know kind of an off-field emotional standpoint? Yeah, he he means the absolute world to this team. He's, I think it's he's, it's probably fair to say he, he's. I don't know whether he's the best Welsh footballer ever, but he's certainly the best player for the Wales team ever, yeah. I think. In terms of just the number, if you go back through their qualifying campaigns to get, you know, not just to Euro 2016, Euro 2020, and this World Cup, the number of times that he'll, he will win a game by scoring two goals right at the end or some brilliant 90, 90th he's minute He's unbelievably kick. clutch. He's so clutch. And the goals that he... It's just it's actually... Watching him for Wales now is just like watching him for Tottenham 10 years ago mm-hmm. where every single game he'll pop up with a brilliant goal in the 90th minute to, to win the game. And so he... It, this Wales team is unimaginable without him. Um, and... But what's really, really interesting about Bale in the context of the team is not only just what an incredible player he is, but how much he absolutely loves the culture of the team and playing with these guys, some of whom he's played with, you know, for 20 years, some of whom are 15 years younger than him. And he just kind of, he's such a leader of the group. He's so engaged with with the whole ethos that they've got. And I think he, you know, he loves playing for Wales far more than he, I think he's ever enjoyed playing for Southampton, Tottenham, Real Madrid. Wales Golf Madrid. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, th- I, think, I think it's really cool to watch. It's really great to watch how much he enjoys it. And I, I, clearly he can't physically do a lot of the stuff that he used to be able to do, mm-hmm. but he can still do quite a lot. Like he can yeah. still, it's, I mean, it's not completely, in, it's not incomparable to say Cristiano Ronaldo's evolution. He's not quite, he's, he's a bit younger than Ronaldo still. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like finessing his game to a point where, you know, he can score from distance, he can head the ball, he's good with free kicks, good at penalties. He can't, you know, he's not going to run 50 yards past the player anymore. But there's still a lot that he can do. So I'm personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Bale does. In you mentioned the ethos ball. of the team. And, you know, I think. I have an idea of that, and I'm not sure how much you can speak to this being that you don't cover them on, on a day-to-day basis, but how would you describe that ethos? We know so much about England and how they're perceived and the pressure that they're constantly under. Is it like kind of a calmer vibe around Wales? It's definitely calmer. There's definitely less less pressure, less expectations. There's much. There's a huge sense of... 
unity amongst the players they have and the sort of you know bonding around shared values and that I think is shown by Rob Page's loyalty to players who've been there from the, the sort of start of the cycle so for example Johnny Williams, um, who I plays, I believe he now plays for Swindon Town in League Two. Yeah, he's in, he's still in the squad because he kind of gets it. Like he's been there through this whole process with Wales. Chris Gunter, another veteran from the Euro 2016 campaign, now at Newport County, a small Welsh team in League Two. Yeah, he's still there. Yeah, and there's actually, you know, I think there's probably better players than them. Mm-hmm. Let's say playing the Championship, who aren't part of the Wales squad because Rob Page does want guys who've you know been through this whole journey and who understand the the values of the team um and i think that i think they i think they realize that what really makes for sustained international overachievement is having that kind of club style ethos mm-hmm. which everyone can buy into um and that's why it's going to be really interesting to see if for example bale and ramsey retire yeah. after this world cup which i, I mean I, I imagine at least one of them will then I, I really hope that, that that those values and that sense of unity can sustain with a new generation of players, but it's going to have to be very carefully managed. I think. Who who would be the person to sustain that among? Would it be Dan James? Would it be Brennan Johnson? Well, I think. I mean, I, I I don't think they would want Bale. Just speculating here, I don't think they'd want Bale and Ramsey to retire at the same time. They might yeah. ask. And Bale, I think, has said that that he wants to continue playing, maybe and try for another World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you know, the I mean, the next Euros because of the calendar change. The next Euros is only eighteen months away, so right. it would be it'd be cool if he could make a third Euros. I mean, Ben Davis, I think, is showing no signs yeah. of slowing down. Yeah. He's you know he's maybe a bit younger than them. He plays a lot of games. Twenty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he'll be around for a while. Uh, Ethan Ampadu is yeah. you know a young player who's done interesting really well. career path. Yeah, Neko Williams is a big part of what they do as well. Um, the right wing back whose name I've just forgotten, Connor <laughs> Roberts. There we go, Connor Roberts. Uh, so like the, there are younger players who are you know who are like a, a valued part of the mm-hmm. of what they're trying to do. So I do think that they I, ultimately they will have to survive Bale and Ramsey retiring, but they won't want it to be too sudden a shock. I think. Sure, that makes sense. I want to transition a little bit um, and talk a little bit about England and then talk a little bit about how the U.S. team is perceived, not just in England, but in the broader U.K. in general. We saw these two teams play at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. I remember, and I talked to a few guys on that U.S. team, Clint Dempsey, Moadu, Stu Holden, about that tabloid headline. I can't remember the paper. Easy. Easy. It was the, it was the sun. Yeah. And then, of course, the U.S. and England draw. We all remember Rob Green. Um, and the U.S. win the group and play Ghana in the round of 16, they lose, but England played Germany, and that didn't go so well for England. Um, What was the reaction to the draw, drawing the US uh, for England, for England fans, for press? Um, And how do you think the US team is perceived by folks over in England these days? Uh, I think people are pretty, I don't think people are too worried about the draw, to be honest. I haven't, I, I think there is, most English people that I've spoken to are quite confident about England's chances against the US. Um, I think this generation of the US team is a bit of an unknown. They're very young. Yeah, they're very young. They obviously weren't at the last World Cup, so people don't have much of a read on how good they're actually going to be. Like, you know, some of the individuals we know pretty well because they play in the Premier League. Yep. But as a unit, it is difficult to get a read on them, which means that, you know, maybe that means that England will be more more vulnerable to being surprised by the US team. But I think 
yeah i'd be lying if i said people had like a clear idea about what to expect from the us yeah well i think that's a fair a fair yeah. thing to think i think even for those of us on the yeah. you know, on, on state side we we don't have much of a clear idea there's one player on the us roster that has been to a world cup before um england hasn't been in great form in the run up to the tournament there's been a lot made of that what do you make of that is do you think it's it's concerning do you think it's a write off do you think it's somewhere in the middle uh, I think it is pretty concerning. Like England have not played at all well in 2022. They came bottom of their group in the Nations League. The fans are starting to turn on Gareth Southgate. They were no waistcoats here in Qatar. No, no, no waistcoats here in Qatar. They were. Um, I was at the game at Wolves where they lost four 0 to Hungary in June, and at the end of which the fans were booing Southgate. Amazing. Uh, An MLS player doing yeah. doing the business against them. Amazing. Daniel Gazdag, yeah. And then um, and then again in Milan in September where the England fans who travelled over for the game were again getting on Southgate's back. So, and I think it's, you know, it's fair to wonder whether six years into Southgate's tenure, maybe the the, the hot the hot air is going out of the balloon a bit. Maybe yeah. England are starting to decline. Maybe it is going a bit stale. I mean, look, ultimately we're going to find out next week, but I don't think I think it's certainly fair to ask those questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, what what are your expectations for them at this tournament? I think England will go out in the quarterfinals. Okay. Um, I think they'll be okay getting out of the group. It's you know it's not a very easy group, but England have got more. They have the most talent. Yeah, they have the most talent, and they've also got more efficient under Southgate at winning these kind of games yeah. than they have been in the past. Um, Last 16, I, I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't especially want to play the Senegal or Holland, but I think they'd probably be marginal favourites in those two games. Mane out now, that changes yeah. things. Yeah. But then in the quarterfinals, I mean, look, it's, you, you can do these predictions all day and you always get them wrong. But if they were to get, let's say in the quarterfinals, they would get France, Argentina or Denmark. I think all three of those teams would be England. Hmm. So I think, I reckon about quarterfinals. I think two of them would probably be favoured over England. Yeah. Maybe I think that, Argentina would be tight. But yeah. yeah, I think... I, it's hard to call, but I, I'd be surprised if England get beyond that beyond that point. Yep, never know in tournament football, of course. But um, any other kind of thoughts, main things that you're thinking about in regards to the England team ahead of the opener against Iran? I'm. I think the big question is going to be how loyal is Southgate going to be to the guys who've played with him for the last two tournaments? Harry Maguire, Harry Maguire, and Raheem Sterling. Yeah, like Maguire has started three Premier League games for Manchester United this season. He's obviously not playing. Or it's, it's not. It's not true to say he's not playing well. He's not playing. Like yeah. he, he's not getting on the field. But there's a reason he's not playing. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, Southgate has been very loyal to Maguire. I'm sure Maguire will start. If Maguire has a bad game or even a bad moment, yeah. then people are going to get on his back. So, and then equally Sterling, again, Southgate's been very, very loyal to Sterling. I think that loyalty's been rewarded because Sterling, I think, was England's best player at the Euros last summer. Yeah, he's fantastic. But he's, you know, City sold him to Chelsea. He's not really done much for Chelsea so far. American fans are familiar with a star player <laughs> right, not doing that yeah, much I for bet. Chelsea. Um, and, you know, England have got some great other players to play in that front three. Yeah. You know, they've got Saka's better than ever. Uh, Foden Foden Grealish maybe Mount maybe Madison who could play in that front three as yeah. well so I think Sterling's place is under quite a lot of pressure and again if he has a bad game against Iran then people are going to call for him to be dropped so I think those are the two those are the two things that I'm really curious to see what's going to happen I cannot believe the Harry Maguire thing like I, I like from afar I, I'm like why, why would he play right now I don't I understand it um, and also Southgate's been Southgate has been quite clear in saying, 
oh, you know, I'm going to have to... He, he's almost literally said, I'm going to have to be really guided by who's playing well for their clubs because because we're going straight from Premier League yeah, to right World Cup it. in a one-week transition and it's not like you have three or four weeks before a tournament. That means I have to be guided by club, by club form. And I get that and that's a totally fine principle. And yet the selection of Maguire completely flies in the face of that. But yeah. I'm, sh- I'm convinced he's going to play against Iran and then we'll have to wait and see what happens from there. Well, that said, we, it's not like England have got many other good alternatives. That's the issue. That's true. That is true. Well, Jack, thank you so much for joining. My really appreciate pleasure. it. Um, and, and like I said, follow Jack. He's, he's covering England. He does a great job doing that and Spurs during the club campaign. Um, so check him out. And yeah, thanks again for joining. appreciate it. It was great. Cheers. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. I'm Sam Stasekul. He's Paul Tenorio. You just heard Jack Pitt Brook break down Wales for us. Full disclosure, Paul and I are speaking before I'm off to record that interview with Jack at a different hotel here in Doha, so we won't be reacting specifically to anything that he said. Maybe we will, but if we do, that's just serendipity. Uh, Paul, let's let's look ahead a little bit and, and drill down on some of the tactical things that we expect to see on Monday night in the match Talking to Brendan Aronson the other day here in Doha, he said something interesting. Wales, of course, play a back five. The U.S. has faced teams that play a back five before, specifically Morocco in Cincinnati. And Aronson highlighted that game as maybe a way or a model for how the U.S. can attack Wales on Monday night. We have a piece about that out at The Athletic. That'll come out at some point on Friday. Paul, expand on it for us. Yeah, I think it was it was both Brendan Aronson and Kellen Acosta who who noted a little bit about that, and and it was something that Kellen Acosta said that stood out to me. I, you and I went and watched that Morocco game. Uh, we also went and watched Wales, and the discussion was about kind of how do you pull defenders out of shape in a back five, right? How do you create space uh, behind the lines in a back five, especially when teams typically sit in a low block? Well, when you watch Wales, they do sit in a low block, but they also press. They do like to pick their moments and press you high. So there are moments where those defenders start to get pulled a little higher. And then the question is, what can you do to pull center backs out of shape? And we went when we watched that Morocco game in the first 10 minutes of that game, there are two pretty good examples of the types of patterns and movements that the U.S. men's national team used to do exactly that against the back five, to pull a right or left center back out of position and create To basically space. drag them from the line of three center backs, move them forward into midfield, which then vacates space behind them for somebody else on the U.S. to run into. That's right. And, and what we saw was mostly using Christian Pulisic to do that because in that Morocco game, if you remember... Yunus Musa was dropping a little bit lower to get onto the ball. That created more space centrally for Pulisic. Brendan Aronson was playing as the other eight. He kind of shaded to the right side to give Pulisic even more space to operate. And, and so Christian Pulisic was checking back to find the ball. And the center backs obviously were going with Christian Pulisic. You want to try to deny him the ball as often as possible. And in those the first 10 minutes of that Morocco game, there were two runs that happened. One was Yunus Musa, who wasn't on the ball at the time. Tyler Adams was on the ball. He had shaded out to the left back side. And when Christian checked back, the center back went with him and, and Eunice Musa took off running into the space. Tyler Adams found him. And Jesus Ferreira was pretty wide open for a good look on goal if Eunice Musa had played an early pass. He didn't. He cut it inside. Things kind of got a little bit chaotic and it ended with Christian Pulisic narrowly missing, actually, the goal with a left-footed shot. But if you go back and look, like that movement set up exactly what they wanted. The, pa- the pattern space. is there. Yeah, the pattern was there, and it created the space. Jesus Ferreira was between the two other center backs. 
a ball into space would have set him on a goal. That's what you want. Later on, it was a similar movement. This time, Yunus Musa was on the ball. Christian checked back. The space opened up. Anthony Robinson went into that space, and Yunus Musa found him with a pass. Again, it was just a little bit off. It didn't, it didn't kind of come off in the final third. That pass was like a yard too wide, and it forced Anthony Robinson to kind of reroute his run and, and slow things down. But the pattern was there. The space was there. And we saw Belgium do the same thing against Wales. And that was a match that Wales' most recent match? That was second to last. So they, in September. Their penultimate match before the World Cup in the Nations League. And, and, and Belgium, I thought what was interesting about that was a lot of the movement or, you know, the, the example I pulled for sure was about getting Kevin De Bruyne on the ball in space. So it was the forward checking back into the space that opened up in the midfield to open up the space and behind it was Kevin De Bruyne making these kind of late runs from a deeper position and getting on the ball. So it shows you that you could do something like that with Christian Pulisic too. If Jesus Ferreira checks and pulls a center back, yeah. Christian Pulisic can move into that space. That so, does require a little bit of hold-up play from your striker to yeah. come back but and lay, one, lay the ball that's off. That's what Jesus Ferreira can, is very good at. I mean, that is kind of like his best strength is actually when you look at his, his data sets, his statistics, like his ability to set up opportunities through – passing is yeah. better than his not necessarily his like a back to goal guy no but his ability to receive a ball under pressure turn and make the right pass is, is probably yes. one of his bigger yes. strengths um so you know i think we're in other words i think that's a pattern of movement we're going to see early from the u.s as they try to kind of get in behind and get a goal early on but as i'm sure we'll we've talked about with jack pitbrook you know there <laughs> there are some risks to this right i mean when you play against a team that plays a low block and you're a team that you know, likes to transition, um, you're going to try to suck your opponent forward and, and create that space in behind. That's what Wales is going to do at points in this game. They're going to sit deep. They're going to invite the U.S. forward, and they're going to look to transition through those spaces, like when Anthony Robinson makes those runs, mm -hmm. that they look to transition to Daniel James or whoever. Gareth Bale, those perhaps. Spaces. Gareth Bale, perhaps, <laughs> you know, probably later in a game. Um, I think he'll be starting on Monday. And so a big part of what you have to pay attention to is kind of your positioning in ahead of defensive transition moments to, to make sure you're, you're aware of the space and aware of the men before that, that change in possession yeah. happens. So, and if you're, if you're a teammate, to be aware of, hey, my left back's super high. Maybe I need to shade over and cover him a little bit. To stay switched on, to put it in yeah, uh, two I mean, words. I think that's the most important thing is like, Talking to people who have kind of been in these types of games and play these types of Tyler systems. Adams spoke Tyler about Tyler Adams is one example. Like you have to stay locked in at all times, like to your role, to your responsibilities, to what's going on around you. I mean, that's true of any game, any system, but yes. Yeah, but I think especially when you are playing a team that looks to hit you in transition. Because like, they can lull you to sleep a little bit. Yeah, well, you're going to have the ball. You're going to start to press forward. You have to be aware. So there are all these little mini, like that, like that pattern movement is like a little mini tactical battle here. A little game you know, within the how game. How you defend your attacking set pieces. That's like a mini battle here. How you defend against Wales set pieces. That's another important yeah, it's battle gonna be, here. Wales are good at set pieces. And, Kiefer Moore, and, keep an eye on him. Yeah. Remember that name? He's six foot five, striker for Bournemouth. Playing well in the Premier League in the build-up to the World Cup. Gareth Bale can hit a free kick. We know that. Um, and so, can get up and, and hit a header and, off of and a And set-piece defending, not a particular area of strength for the U.S. Well, team. I think this is a good place to transition into some of the questions about the lineup, Sam. Because I think, 
you know, we all are kind of in some ways expecting Tim Ream to start just kind of based on how Greg Berhalter talked about mm-hmm. him in the roster selection, how well he's been playing for Fulham. But realistically, if you were to make team selections based purely on kind of matchups of what a team does best and how can I take those away, I feel like this this is the game for Aaron Long. Or maybe Cameron Carter-Vickers. Yeah, or I mean, but I think when you I think when you look, I think Walker Zimmerman's going to start. But I, I, the two biggest strengths that you could say of Aaron Long's historically have been his ability to win aerial duels, very, very, very good at that, and he's fast, uh, or has been fast. I, I know we'll, people will look at that Cincinnati goal and say oh, that was not, not so a speed anymore. thing. That but, was just he was asleep. But and, and Brandon Vasquez was not. Ability to defend in space, you're asked to do it all the time in the Red Bull system as a center back. You're defending 1v1 in space against transition moments. That's going to happen against Wales. And you have to be able to defend in the air both on long vertical balls. And set pieces. And on set pieces. Aaron Long, good at that. Tim Ream, aerial duels, probably one of his biggest weaknesses. Um, and so I, I'm interested to see how much of this becomes – a lineup decision based on those tactics versus how much is it saying, listen, Tim Ream has, is playing really well. He's 35. He's a veteran. He's savvy. He knows his strengths. He knows his weaknesses. He, he puts himself in position to kind of defend based on that. And he's shown in the Premier League an ability to kind of cover up his own weaknesses yeah. through his veteran savvy. Yeah. I, I don't know which way Greg Burrell well, is going to go. Well, I think some of it depends on Weston McKenney and what his status for this game is. He has not played since October 29th. He's been training fully. That's positive. But we don't know exactly how fit he is. Paul, we still actually need to go back and look at how Burhalter has treated players who haven't played in a few weeks heading into camps. A uh, little reminder for ourselves there. Um, but he hasn't played. He's obviously one of the U.S.'s best players on set pieces. Fantastic in the air. Really strong attacking and defending on those. If he doesn't play, Zimmerman is strong on set pieces. Other than that, you don't have many big bodies. And if you're replacing him in the midfield with Brendan Aronson, well, you're certainly not expecting Brendan to win a lot of headers in the U.S.'s own penalty area. So Literally name anyone else you'd expect to win a header Besides Walker Zimmerman, if you take Weston McKinney out of the lineup. Maybe Josh Sargent, but we don't know if he's going to start. Yeah, assuming Jesus Ferreira starts, yeah. nobody else. Maybe, maybe like, is Anthony Robinson then, like, the next guy in line? Yeah, probably. And, and, and so, you know, Aaron Long would be the next guy in line if he's in the lineup. And then if it's Tim Ream, maybe you're feeling a little bit, bit, bit nervous about that. Wales has some big bodies guys that can compete and battle for those, as we mentioned. So if McKenney doesn't start or can't start, does that then affect what Burhalter does with Ream? Are we getting are we overthinking this a little bit too much? No, but these are these are these the are the conversations, conversations that have. the coaching staff yeah. is having. I mean I I did look this up while you were talking. Anthony Robinson's not too bad at aerials. He you know He's F- a pretty big guy. And he's a fantastic athlete. I mean these these FB ref numbers that are get pulled from uh from opta it's difficult because everyone kind of measures things in different ways so you can't put too much stock into these numbers but basically you get compared to your same position in the top five leagues and he's in the 66 66 percentile in aerials one for left back so he's 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 decent okay but the point being that you're you you're playing a team that's very good on attacking set pieces in fact it wins a lot of games on set pieces has a lot of big bodies and you're right if you're not playing with Weston on the field, 
and then you take Aaron Long out of the lineup as well, you've basically left yourself with one defender who's You're going to be very nervous strength. anytime you foul Wales in their own in yeah, your own so, half. You know, these are things that that are, are worth considering and and you know, I think part of this is we got to remember like if you go back to different World Cups, like like 2010 is a good example. You know, there's been you can use squad rotation through these games. You can create these matches. And the games are only four that. days apart. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna need to rotate some some aspects of this team no matter what. So you know, I don't know. I, I again, I I feel like tactically, if we're if you're making a lineup decision based purely on tactical matchups, like I I kind of feel like Aaron Long's gonna start in this game, but. I agree with I, you for whatever it's worth. I, just think, I think like, Reem will start against England. I, I, I just I, part of that is that there are doubts in my mind that Weston McKinney can start. Now, if Weston McKinney can start and give you sixty minutes, then maybe Tim Reem starts. I, well, even if he can only if he can only give you sixty minutes, you run into that same problem for the final thirty. So, for sure. I mean, I, I think also it's it's worth considering. Like if you are ramping. Weston McKinney up and you're trying to get him to a point where he can play 70, 80, 90 minutes. And he might be able to right now for all that we know. You, you, want, you might want to give him those 60 minutes anyway so he's ready for England. You know, So yeah. we, these are the, the question marks where we don't know and the coaching staff has a lot more information than we do. And so it's hard to make these, this starting lineup because there is a domino effect. If yeah. Weston can go, I feel more comfortable starting Tim Ream. You know, if he can't go and you're starting Brendan Aronson, then I think you kind of have to play Aaron Long. If we are going to look at that Morocco game, which you and I have, and you talk about the ways that they move Aronson guys around. might be better suited for this not, game anyway. Not only that, but then it, it comes to the question of the right back. Are you starting both Anthony Robinson and Serginho Dest? Because what you're going to do, what you're asking, if you're playing a little bit more aggressively against a five-man back line and Anthony Robinson's bombing forward as part of this idea. Then you need Serginho Dest to stay at home Reggie a little Cannon bit Reggie stayed home at right back against Morocco. And you need, as Tyler Adams said yesterday, your fullbacks, your back four, are going to be isolated in space and need to defend 1v1 a lot. And what did Greg Berhalter say when he talked about selecting Shaq Moore for this team? He is an excellent 1v1 defender in space. Yeah. You know, so if you're looking at these matchups and you're saying, okay, maybe we want Serginio Dest against England and we want to be putting him in these games where he can elevate. Another guy who's been playing inconsistently, who's been off to the side yeah, this week. We don't even know how fit he is. On an individual management program, trying to get him fit, trying to get him to, to, to the right point to play as big a role as he can play. So, you know, all of that being said, I'm sure I'm scaring the hell out of people listening to this podcast, but I, could, I see a feasible <laughs> path scary here guy, Paul. to Brendan Aronson starting, Aaron Long starting and Shaq Moore starting in the opening game. And people will freak out when they see that starting lineup. But when you when you zoom in first on the tactical matchup and then when you zoom out at the big picture and you're saying, OK, we need to get Serginho Dest fit. We need to get Weston McKinney fit. We need to have the right matchup against Wales defensively. Those decisions would make sense. Yeah. I, but we're, we're also making leaps here. If, if Weston McKinney is fit, this changes a lot of different things. If Serginio Dest is just doing load management where it's not purely about fitness, it's maybe he's got that little bit of a tweak and they're just, then it's a little bit different. But I, I could see a scenario okay. where it's so, Yedlin or more. So let's say that, that everybody is 60 plus minutes healthy, just for the sake of argument here. Who would you start? You do yours, I'll do mine. You ready for that? Yeah. Um, yeah, again, I am a believer that you will need a level of squad rotation at a World Cup. Dest, by the way, never played in all three qualifiers in, in a qualifying window. Yeah. Max that at two. 
I think you do need squad rotation. I think you do need to keep in mind that these guys are, you know, you want to look at these matchups down the road too. Who who fits best against England? Who fits best against um, Iran? So in with that in mind, knowing I definitely want Gio Reyna starting against England, trying to find guys who can help me keep the ball, receive it under pressure, all those things. Interesting. Like I think that I am going to start, would start, Brendan Aronson, just to be safe with Weston, because you, you definitely want him in midfield against to, England. Against England to try to win those duels and, and control that midfield as best you can defensively. Um, and, and so I start Brendan Aronson in this game. I I think you have to have your best aerial defenders in this game against Wales. It's the like probably their biggest threat is on set pieces. So I start Aaron Long in this game, and I. I I have a feeling based on the fact that Serginho Dest was off to the side doing load management that it's going to be either Shaq Moore or DeAndre Yedlin. I don't know what he does there. I would say Yedlin because of the World Cup experience. He played in England against a lot of these players. Maybe you trust that experience a little bit more than Shaq Moore. But, yeah, you know, I told you this, Sam, on the plane. I think we've said it on this podcast before. You know, Shaq Moore's performance against Panama sticks with me. Getting off a plane. Slightly different level. Slightly different level. But I could see, you know, that is his biggest strength, his ability to defend 1v1. Um, Again, I'm going to lean Yedlin because of the World Cup experience. So I I do think you see Serginho Dest on the bench in the first game as as Mm. he tries to level up his fitness. That certainly wouldn't surprise me. I'm trying to think of what I would do. I'll go through the whole 11. I think Matt Turner will start in goal. Turner did tell us the other day that Berhalter has not told him whether or not he's starting. Uh, that was on Wednesday. Uh, maybe that's changed. He is wearing the number one. Uh, Zimmerman, and, and I'm with you with Aaron Long on the center backs. People are going to love that, Paul. They're really going to love these picks. Anthony Robinson at left. I think, I think you're right about Dest on the right side. But I don't know. I mean, it's you talk about squad rotation. It's the World Cup, man. Like, I don't know. Like, you kind of need to... You, the first game is super, super, super important. What was it? Eight out of 73 teams? Only eight teams that lost their first game. Eight out of 73 advanced to the knockout rounds, dating back to 1998. If they lose this game, they're basically dead in the water. So, you kind of... You can't really mess around with it too much. I think we'll probably see Dest, personally. And I yeah. think he'll be asked to put in a more disciplined performance. Midfields, I agree with you. I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be Aronson. Um, I think he's the right choice for this style of matchup, and I think McKenney will maybe come in off the bench. Uh, up top, Wea, Polisic, and I think it'll be Ferreira. Um, so we'll see. That's yeah. that's my predicted eleven. Yeah, and again, I mean, I, I I look at that desk decision as a fitness one. If he's not fit, does he give you the best chance to win this game? Yeah, and we don't know the answer. I mean, to that. he did he did play on Sunday night for Milan. He played some minutes. How many minutes did he play? I think it was like thirty five. Yeah. So yeah. where does he? I we these are things that we just don't know. But when you when you hear that somebody's off to the side doing load management work, yeah, no, like it, that it, it concerns it, it raises a red flag yeah, for me. So yeah. I, I'm just being a little bit cautious here. You, yes, if he's ninety minute fit, if he's 65, 75 I mean, minutes, Shaq fit, Moore hasn't played a game in how long? DeAndre Yedlin hasn't played a game in how long? Still a question of like desks. I mean, what issues. about Joe Scally? We haven't mentioned oh, Joe Scally playing a, playing right back yeah. every single week in the Joe, Bundesliga. Joe I think that I think shot. that he might be the the guy to start potentially if if Desk Yeah, can. it's not a bad. Uh, uh, we'll see. I mean, my my big thing is just like whoever it is at right back, 
I, I just I'm raising a red flag there just because of yes, and clearly we have we have some things to work through here, yeah, Paul, you and I. Sure. We will have a predicted lineup piece and and kind of a, a little bit more of an overarching preview. I do want to get you on one more thing before we you know make a very premature prediction about this game and close out the show. You mentioned earlier in this segment that you thought you know in the opening minutes when the U.S. is pushing for a goal and looking to get ahead. I don't know that it's necessarily going to play out like that. I could see this being a very cagey, very tight, both teams being pretty risk-averse kind of match that's maybe decided by a set piece, and it's a 1-0 or a 1-1 or something like that. Do you think it's going to be? Do you think the U.S. is going to really push to start? I think in the first 10 minutes, they're going to look to use that pattern to get in behind and see if they can create an early chance. I agree that this is going to be a cagey game. Everyone knows the data on yeah, first we game losses. Yeah. And so there is going to be uh, a little bit of a tight approach to this game in general. Yeah. Um, I, I've said all along since this, this group happened and the schedule happened, I think this is going to be a one nothing game. And I think obviously the fate of the U.S. Men's National Team World Cup rests on whether that one is in their favor or against their favor. I could see them getting an early goal and protecting that lead all the way through. I could see them giving up a late set-piece goal to Gareth Bale and losing one nothing, and now you're out of the World Cup. Gareth Bale doesn't score late goals. Yeah, who? who? <laughs> um, so I, 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 that's what I've said this whole time. I still, still believe it. Um, but I do think those first 10 minutes, like they were against Morocco, you look to create those moments. Okay. And then you get a little bit... I think at that point you kind of reset and try to figure things out defensively too because you don't want to do open that too much and too open much. yourself up on the back end. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think – I mean, I'll jump ahead here, Sam. I think the U.S. is going to get a result in this game. I have a feeling it's one nothing. I do. Okay. Not 1-1. One, one. I was going to say a result is that, yeah, that implies I, two I, different outcomes. I, I don't want to hedge here. I mean, I, think, I, I don't think they'll lose, but I, I think they're going to win this game. I think they're going to win this I game. I do too. I'm still sticking with my prediction for them to get through the group, and that involves winning this game. So I think – I don't know if, it, if it's 1-0 or 2-1, but I would say it's one of those, maybe a sneak 2-0, but that's third on my list. Uh, I'll think about that more. Paul, we have a lot to think about. We talked about at the start of the show that the World Cup maybe didn't necessarily feel real for a lot of people yet. It feels a lot more real for me right now after we've finished recording this episode <laughs> than it did before. Um, so hopefully for you, listener, it feels pretty real too. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the buildup. Enjoy the match. We are going to have so much coverage on theathletic.com, both from the U.S. perspective, from the Wales perspective. Um, we'll have another episode probably recorded for you at like 4 in the morning, Qatari time, uh, on Monday. Uh, so stay tuned for that after the match. Paul, any, any final thoughts? Listen, you got a weekend before the U.S. kicks off their World Cup. What better way to prepare than to binge from Cuba to Qatar? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Say the whole name. From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. That's right. Brought to you by Manscaped. Unsubscribe, resubscribe, resubscribe, re-download, re-rate, re-review. Do it all. Yeah, and you know what? We're just going to go and be roommates now, and uh, we'll talk to you guys after the game from the, the wee hours of the morning here. Are you trying Qatar. to steal my sign-off? Yeah. I don't like that. Allocation disorder. Bye.